Hello and welcome to Sales as Mental, a podcast promoting meaningful perspectives on mental health from people in the sales profession. folks we are back for another solo episode of sales is mental i've got a few guests lined up in the next few weeks and took a little bit of time off because i was having a hard time mentally um yeah i was struggling with my energy levels i felt disconnected from people um and for context i'm originally from the uk but i live in the us um i relocated out here about three years ago now almost exactly Um, And sometimes I just feel super disconnected and lonely and that gets me down. Um, And I'm thankful to have some great colleagues at work who make a massive difference. I've got some great friends here as well. Um, But there's nothing like being around your family. And sometimes I get homesick and that is okay. I've learned. Um, But it feels uncomfortable sharing that. And that is kind of what I wanted to focus on a little bit today um, in terms of this episode and yeah, what I want to talk about. Um, And first of all, I think a lot of people have seen it by now, Um, a a viral moment from a UFC fighter called Paddy the Baddy Pimblet. I'm not a big UFC fan. It's way too intense for me, way too violent. Um, It scares the absolute living daylights out of me, to be totally, totally frank. But, uh, But I thought Paddy Pimblet made an incredible kind of speech on a very public stage. Um, about losing a friend of his to suicide and why men don't talk about it. And it's really what I wanted to focus on today um, as someone who identifies as a man and struggles with that kind of uh, expectation of what a man should be. And it's something that I've explored a lot with with friends of mine. Um, I've read some stuff about it as well. And yeah, I just wanted to kind of dive into um, why I think a moment like that from from Paddy the Baddy goes so viral. Um, and I think largely it's because so many men relate and so many women relate too. Um, and people in general relate to those messages because so many people are touched by the impacts of, of mental health and suicide. Um, to the best of my knowledge, in the UK at least, suicide is the biggest killer of men between the ages of like 18 and 35 or 21 and 40, something like that. I'd need to double check the stats, but it's it's a very real problem that needs addressing um, amongst friends. As much as mental health care and professional support is, you know, undefeated in terms of the impact that it can have, whether it's working with therapists or counselors, uh, psychiatrists who can help you with medication. First of all, I want to make it abundantly clear that I would always say go and seek out the help of a professional. Go and seek out someone who can give you the best possible advice on how to manage what you're dealing with. But I think for men especially, that first step of admitting that you're struggling with something and arriving at a place where you seek help is incredibly difficult for a multitude of reasons. The first one, I think, is just the kind of 
the the definition of of what it means to be a man and what masculinity looks like and i think it's so incredibly hard to define but there are a lot of archetypes around us right like movies um tv and film uh, obviously play a big part sports um are another one where there are these very clearly defined kind of roles for what a man should be and what that looks like and i think it's interesting with the rise of some of these internet figures and kind of almost false idols, um, which seem to be very controversial, rooted in clickbait and uh, and getting views and just being like, um, I don't know, kind of obnoxious in a message of like strength and what it means to be a man. And to me, slightly archaic kind of gender roles. Um, I think ultimately anyone in the world is a sensitive being whether or not they can cope with those feelings or how they cope with their feelings is going to vary massively for some people the kind of hyper masculine like hunter gatherer i do everything i'm okay all for myself that can work for some people but for a lot of people it doesn't work and i think that admitting that you have a challenge is the first step in order to being able to talk about it and it's something i still struggle with to this day like I have an incredibly hard time admitting that I'm really struggling. And I also have a really hard time letting someone in beyond just a surface level of like, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm struggling with. Like, I don't want to tell people the, the ins and outs, the inner workings of my mind, because I don't necessarily feel comfortable. And that kind of psychological safety can take a long time to build and develop with other people. So I think fear is the next thing. It, it, fear plays an enormous part in your mental health because there's so much fear around so many things, around being judged, around like having control over a narrative of like how you are, who you are, and what does that look like on a day-to-day -day when you're struggling. For me, I think fear and control, maybe even that control is kind of a, a, a symptom of the fear. For me, I want to be in control of like how people perceive me and how they think about my mental health and how bad on a scale of whatever that scale might be, it is. But in reality, I have no control over what other people think or what other people feel or how bad or good, if you can even call it that, my, my mental health is. I think we're always dealing with our health mentally. We're always in some, we're always somewhere on a sliding scale of dealing with things the best we can to dealing with things in the, the worst possible ways. And that manifests in a whole bunch of different ways for people. But I think for men, one of the biggest challenges is like overcoming that fear of talking and knowing who to talk to. And, and I don't think it's about how you talk about it. It's just the talking itself. Because there's something which feels, I think for a lot of men, almost emasculating talking about their feelings. That, you know, I grew up in the UK and I think the impacts of things like two world wars, like that's a huge amount of generational trauma. And there's those very famous posters that went round of like keep calm and carry on. And I think that kind of British stiff upper lip is something that persists in our society. It persists in the way that men in the uk move through the world and it's also why i think you see so much drinking and substance abuse in the uk as well that's just my take and drinking is something that i really struggled with but never really knew um 
about. And again, I think the drinking was an escape from that fear that I've been talking about, the fear of opening up. And so for me, what drinking would look like in terms of an escape was I would never drink during the week when I was working. Never did. But at the weekends, I would drink to excess. I would drink to get drunk. I would drink to escape. I would run using alcohol. And I never had an off button. And I never knew why that was. And there were times where I'd quote unquote get it right, where I didn't get too drunk. But there are a lot of times where I'd have too much to drink and I ended up in all kinds of compromising situations where I was putting myself at risk, occasionally others at risk, and was actually hospitalized multiple times uh, for, for drinking. And it's something that at the time I, I kind of explained away that it wasn't really a problem, that I just needed to learn my limits. And later into kind of my mid to late 20s, I was diagnosed with ADHD and I was talking to the psychiatrist about it, about like, would there be any reason why I, I wouldn't really feel the effects of alcohol? And then suddenly it was like a train that hit me all at once. I'd go from talking to you as I am now to suddenly being incredibly like inebriated and out of it and um and they shared with me that one of the things that alcohol will do is help kind of slow down your brain so for someone like me who has thoughts running at a thousand miles an hour which probably even comes across in these episodes and and how i kind of bounce around topics but um i struggled massively with that um massively with a sense of like slowing my brain down and having that kind of peace and so it made sense yeah the psychiatrist told me that my the alcohol would kind of slow my brain down and so that would be something that for me was like a desirable effect and maybe was happening subconsciously and of course the reality of drinking a lot is that you wake up the following day and you feel rotten you feel rough you wake up feeling kind of dusty and geez what happened and I'd be trying to piece together the memory of nights before and a lot of my friends I think didn't realize that I had a problem because so many people in the UK are drinking now I don't want to out my friends like they're all functioning alcoholics because they're not but I sort of envied their relationship because they seemed to be able to strike that balance but for me it was like once I got started I just if I was in an environment where people were drinking I would just go and go and go and go and go and that was because I just wanted to run. I was just trying to run from all of these things and I didn't know how to talk about them. And to kind of take it all the way back to to the fear piece and, and, and when I first started struggling with my mental health, I was probably about 16, 17. And um, I, on paper, had a great life. You know, I've got supportive parents. I've got two wonderful brothers who I love very much and great friends. I was at a good school. I was doing well. I was in the sports teams. I was in, you know, the the school plays. Like I was involved in as much as I possibly could be at school. And so from the outside looking in, my life was pretty great. And that was one of the things that I found incredibly hard to understand is like, why do I feel like this? Why do I have this like nagging, feeling of like lacking energy and why do I feel low um, and isolated and disconnected from people and eventually that that kind of reached ahead when I had like a full-blown breakdown just before what are called your A-levels in the UK which is like the biggest set of high school qualifications that you do um, aged 18 to get you into university if that's your plan and that's what you want to do so college equivalent for everyone listening I'm sure university translates um 
And yeah, so when I was 18, I, I went um, on holiday with my mum and my youngest brother to um, a little cottage that my grandparents had in Wales, which is a separate country from England, for those who aren't great on their geography. And we're in this beautiful rural cottage, um, and there's no internet there, and so it's a great place to study. And this is way back in 2008. Um, and we went to the beach one day after I'd been studying um and kind of revising for for these exams and um and I just kept having these visions of of walking out into the sea and not coming back these kind of suicidal ideations and I just imagined myself over and over again and then we got in the car and then all I could think about in the car on the way back was like the car like slamming into a wall or having like a head-on collision and my mum and my youngest brother being fine but me like being killed um, and not living anymore and then we got back to the cottage and then I saw these kitchen knives which were on the wall on one of those kind of magnetic strips and again these really persistent incredibly aggressive thoughts kept coming up um, of just like maybe I could kill myself with that um, and it was incredibly uh, incredibly challenging because I didn't know why I had this kind of death drive within me why was it that I was trying so desperately um, mentally? This one part of me wanted me to just end everything. And I broke down and I was literally kind of catatonic um, in tears, curled up in like a fetal position, aged 18 um, one night. And my mum, bless her, saved my life basically and said, we're going to figure this out. And, uh, and from that moment, I then went and saw a counsellor and I was so scared of talking about what I was feeling. I didn't open up to her. And I think it was a kind of a, a maturity thing. But I was given some medication. And at the time, that medication worked really well um, and helped me out. And I made it through my exams and got into the university that I wanted to go to. Um, and then I took a year out between school and university. And I was drinking a lot then. And again, I think I was running for things. My parents were sadly splitting up. And so that was a really hard thing to go through. Um, and I, I didn't really think about it, though, because I was having the time of my life. I spent time in Hong Kong um, and then in Australia and was like having the trip of a lifetime with with friends. And I spent some time with family as well in Hong Kong. And um, yeah, I I was very actively running from the pain of my parents splitting up, I think. And I didn't really realize it at the time. And then I came back and went to university and this kind of pattern of escaping with, with alcohol just continued. Um, at university, a lot of people like to go out. I'm sure it's the same in the US with the, the college scene. And so you're going out, it's very social. And so my studies kind of fell on the back burner. But I think, again, I hadn't got to the root of the problem and my fear was so persistent. I was still running from that fear of having to admit, like, oh, I've, I'm really struggling here. I'm, I'm really having a hard time, and I don't know what to do about it. Um, and so I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the, 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 the fear of opening up for a lot of men is so powerful that it will lead them to every other avenue to explore before they begin to talk about it. And the irony for me in my case was I knew exactly what I needed to do. I knew I needed to talk. I knew I needed to connect. And I didn't. Um, and in not connecting with people and in not talking about it, what I was dealing with only grew bigger. And this part of me, and people describe it as like the black dog or a dark cloud 
or whatever other metaphor or analogy you want to use, only grew within me. And so whilst I transitioned from university into my professional life, I'd never drink during the week. But then, as I said, I, I drink at the weekends to escape. And I kept doing that and kept doing that. And I was hospitalized multiple times and I never saw it as a problem. I never saw it as a problem. Um, and eventually then I reached a point later in my life a few years ago where I was like, I'm going to stop drinking. Um, because at the time it was impacting on a relationship and it was also impacting on just like, I just thought like, this isn't great. But I didn't set out to get sober. And so, yeah, I just kind of kept it up. Um, and I'll touch on kind of sobriety and 12 step in, in maybe a different episode. But for me, the fear is a very, very, very powerful thing and something that needs exploring. And I think the other incredibly powerful force in these conversations is uh, or important to bring into these conversations, excuse me, is is shame. Um, because I think there's this deep sense of shame when you're struggling mentally as a man that you are not doing something right, that you're not being a man, that somehow struggling mentally makes you less of a man. Now, there's a whole much bigger debate to be had about, like, can you define gender as strictly? Like, is there such thing as, like, an archetypal man and an archetypal woman? Because I think we're evolving all the time. And you look at society now versus society thousands of years ago, Gender roles were, were something that were just kind of constructed. And then it was like these expectations. But now I think, you know, we see with even, I don't know, the lionesses last weekend um, was an incredible thing to see. And, and like for the longest time, you know, women's football has been marginalized, but now it's gaining that profile and people enjoy it just as much. And so anyway, I don't want to get into a big gender debate, but I do think the, the power of shame amongst men is is enormous. Learning how to talk about like what you're going through without shame or being able to confront what you're dealing with on your own and being like, I feel ashamed of this. Why would be my question. And that's a question I ask myself, like, why do I feel shame about this? If I'm having a hard time, I'm having a hard time and I need to seek help and I can't help myself in the ways that I want to. And it's something that I've learned through different um, therapists um, and some incredible work that I've done with my my therapists, books that I've read, 12-step fellowships. Um, yeah, just there's so many things where you realize that just you have to let go of that desire to control the narrative around it and control that sense of like, I've got this because you don't. Like, I hate to break it to anyone who's struggling, but you on your own cannot figure it all out. You can figure a lot out, but there's fundamental things that you're going to need, I believe. I think you need to try and connect with someone else, whether it's a friend, a family member, a therapist, whoever it might be. It can be a crisis helpline. But those moments of connection, I believe, is why we're here as people. I believe that's how you overcome the fear. That's how you overcome the shame, is connecting with people. Because you only have today, you're only here now, you can't change anything that's come before as much as you'd like to, and you have no control over what's about to happen, whether it's a minute away, a day away, a month away, a year away and beyond. You have no control over those things. 
And as much as I'd love to say I'm be here now and Eckhart Tolle and the power of now, I'm super present all the time. That's not the case. That's not how I live my life. I firmly live my life looking backwards and forwards a lot of the time. I think about it as like if I'm looking down the street both ways, I'm trying to look all the way back down the street years ago and all the way forward to like what's going to happen tomorrow. Is this thing going to happen at work? Am I going to close this deal? And so... I guess drawing this back to, yeah, the world of work and, and what that looks like, again, it's like this societal conditioning of how do we talk about these this fear and this shame at work and how do we normalize it, especially for men and amongst men. And I would love to see um, more of it happen. And I've been incredibly lucky like in, in, in sharing a little bit about my story. And this isn't a polished podcast, you know, I'm just recording at home. Um, I kind of riff and, and go off the cuff, but it's just things that come into my mind. And I find this kind of therapeutic and cathartic. And I only share it with a view of like, if one person listens to this, and I'm not, you know, Joe Rogan, I haven't got thousands and millions of listeners or eyes on me. Um, I'm just recording this in like a little cupboard um, in my flat. But but I only share it because if one person listens to this and thinks like, oh, I relate to that or that's something that I've struggled with, then then sometimes that can foster a conversation or it might have the domino effect of someone sharing with someone else. And um, I've been overwhelmed by just like so many kind messages from from friends of mine or acquaintances, connections on LinkedIn who've just said some very, very kind things. And I think it just goes to show like the power of having these conversations. And it's why I began this. It's why I am such a big believer in, in talking and talking therapy and talking as therapy. It doesn't have to be with a therapist all the time. Some of the most helpful conversations I have are with my closest friends. Um, and they make just as much, if not more of a difference than some of the professional help. Now, there's no substitute for a professional diagnosing you and giving you very actionable advice on, you know, clinically what is going on. But there's also a lot that you can do around letting go and realizing that connecting with people can have a, a massive impact. And I think to, to bring it full circle all the way back to, to Paddy the Baddy and, and that speech that he gave in subsequent interviews where he's crying about the loss of his friend and why men don't talk, I think... It's so important and it's why that message becomes so universal because so many people relate, but how many people are going to be talking about it outside of like, isn't this brilliant? Like outside of sharing that message, what are you doing? How are you reaching out to maybe one of your friends or someone you know who might be struggling? Or are you talking to your friends about something you're struggling with? Because it's incredibly powerful. And there's so much joy to be had in those conversations. And there's so much perspective to be gained. Because in my life, I know I will always struggle with my mental health. I know I will always struggle with incredibly invasive thoughts at points in my life. But I have more desire to live than to die. And I have so much more to give in my life and to give others. And the more that we can be in service of others, the more that we can help each other and recognize we're all flawed and own up to it and be radically accountable for those things because I'm not perfect. And I've treated some of the people that I care most about terribly because of things that I've struggled with because it's way easier to dodge them with that fear, with that shame than really confront them. So yeah, I guess I just wanted to come on and, and talk about, yeah, the, the Paddy the Baddy effect 
um, and why men don't talk. And I hope, um, if nothing else, that this might encourage you or someone you know to, to open up um, to someone you love or a professional about something that you're finding hard. And hopefully we can continue to normalize these, these conversations.